Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fourth week of our series on Matthew chapters 10 and 11 called Offensive Love. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. We've been in the start of the study of the book of, of Matthew, starting in chapter 10 and really focusing on, on Matthew 10. And what we're finding is, it, I'll let you know, even this morning, the passage we're looking at, it's not one of the you know, easy passages. A lot of this is talking about this idea of, well, God's calling us to go out, but in the context of opposition. Um, that's not, not kind of one of those things that you choose to preach on. And, and you say, this is encouraging, but yet it is when we look at it. And one of the things that I really believe is that God calls us to study the Bible, you know, systematically, large sections of the Bible, because it forces us to deal with passages that we might otherwise you know, kind of want to avoid because it's difficult or because it's uncomfortable. And uh, so this morning, we're gonna be looking at Matthew 10, verses 26 through 33. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me. And, uh, and I'd encourage you to keep it open throughout our time. You know, every week, you know, what I try to say out of, the, out of in my message, it's really, I try not to share my ideas, my opinions, but just really expound on what God's word is saying. And if you have your Bible open, it helps you to see where it's all coming from and referring back to the text as we go through it and it kind of expound on what it's saying. But let me begin by reading the passage we're looking at, Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be uh, known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come together to worship this morning. Father, now to be able to dive into your word. Father, I pray that this would be a time that we, we hear in your word, your heart, your message. Father, I pray that you would get me out of the way. I thank you what your spirit has already taught me and I pray that you would speak through me and in spite of me. And Father, I pray that each one of us would have hearts to hear what you would have for us to hear this morning, that you would be here and that you would bless this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the early 1900s, there was a well-known atheist speaker who was making the circuit speaking at the various towns. And um, in that time, in the 19, early 1900s, it was before TV, before movie theaters. And it was common, you would have well-known speakers travel around and people would actually go to hear them as a kind of form of entertainment. And so a well-known speaker would commonly fill, fill up a large auditorium. And that was the case here. You had a large auditorium, it was filled with people. And yet he came with a subject. He was not just trying to speak, he was trying to make a point and uh, he was, as an atheist, his subject was, why well, do not believe in God? And, and before long, he was captivating the audience, not only with his scientific knowledge, but also his eloquence and his passion and his magnetic personality. And over time, he attacked every pillar of the Christian faith with this logic and persuasion. At the end of his presentation, he concluded with the challenge of saying, well, now I prove that there is no God, and if there is no God, there can be no Son of God. So I'm going to challenge any of you here 
to stand up and to tell me that there is, that Jesus is the Son of God, to answer any of the, any of the arguments that I've made before you today. And the crowd responded with stunned silence. Now, most of them in the room did believe in God. Many of them were actually very committed followers of Jesus Christ, but they were intimidated by the speaker's arguments, by his eloquence. You know, all of them were thinking, you know, what if everyone else was convicted and convinced? And, and if I stand up, I'm the only one. What will I do then? And, and, and if he asked me a question, how could I respond to his arguments and, and you know, this, the arguments of the scholar, of this professional speaker? So everyone sat in stunned silence as, as the speaker took that silence as an opportunity to begin to mock Christianity even more. Now let me ask you, if you were in that room, how would you respond? For many of us, it's actually not that theoretical of a question. Oh, we may not have been in a large auditorium with a speaker that would call us out in that way, but we have all been in settings where we've been around non-believers who've attacked the Christian faith or maybe called us out on our faith in challenging us to give us an answer, and we've struggled to know how to respond. Or at times, we've even struggled to even have the courage to say anything. And we have to ask, what should we do? What should we say? This morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 10 and uh, verses 26 through 33. And one of the things that we're seeing in, the, in, this cha- in this whole section is because we're looking at this longer message that Jesus is saying to his disciples, really starting at the end of chapter nine, it's this long thing where he's calling his followers out, us out. He's saying, okay, I want to challenge you to continue my work after my ascension. You're now called to continue my work here on earth. And, and we're seeing this in context. We've got to kind of remember that. And the context we looked at some of this last week is that, is that this whole passage gives God's perspective on our calling in our culture. And, and one of the things that we talked about last week is if you look at this whole big picture, what you find is there's almost a striking contradiction in the two parts of Jesus' message. You see, on the one hand, he's incredibly optimistic that he, he calls us out to go out with confidence. So for example, if we look at the end of chapter nine and verse 37, you know, it says, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Know that he's sending us out. People are going to respond. We can have confidence of that. In chapter 10, one, he gave them authority. We have Jesus' authority to go do his ministry. We're told that we're preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's his kingdom that he's establishing. We know that we, he will be victorious. We can be confident. So that's optimism. But then just a few verses later, in the same, you know, same message, probably a few minutes in the talk that he's giving, he seems to shift to a far more pessimistic perspective. And so he talks about, let's say in verse 17, he says, beware of men for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. Uh, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Or in verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. People are gonna reject you and they're gonna hate you and they're gonna try to uh, kill you. And that's, that's harsh. And there seems to be two different messages here. You know, when we've got to ask, which one do we focus on? Do we look at the optimism and say, okay, we're called out to go out and we know that God is working and the harvest is plentiful. Or do we go out with a pessimism of saying, man, it's gonna be hard and we're gonna be persecuted. And what we talked about some last week is the Bible isn't, isn't optimistic or pessimistic. It is something that is deeper. In, in fact, to kind of explain it, I've, I've made up a word I shared with you last, last week, you know, that the Bible is totally realistic about evil while affirming that God is greater than evil. It's not about optimism. It's not about pessimism. The word that I've made up is it's, it's sovereignism. 
and this idea that there's this a realistic confidence of sovereignism, it, it combines these ideas that we're totally optimistic and confident of God's call and that God is gonna work, he's in charge, the harvest is gonna be plentiful. But at the same time, we realize that God has called us to go out in the reality of harsh opposition. And while there will be many who will respond positively, there will be many that will respond negatively and some even harshly. And there will be times that we even feel that we're at odds with our culture, where our culture is, is turning things so around that they're calling us who stand for Christ and his word is, is evil. But the whole idea of sovereignism is don't lose hope. Don't give up. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Jesus knew this was going to happen in the very beginning, so he's telling us, go out with confidence, but don't be shocked by this. It's really part of what, you, uh, what Paul talks about, and again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If we're called, all things are worked together for good. It's not that all things are good. There's going to be bad things that are happen, but we realize that in that, God is in charge. And so as we look at that, the challenge then we're gonna see that Jesus gives us this morning and the passages that we're looking at is knowing that we are called to bring out his message in the midst of possible rejection, even hostility. Will we have the courage to do it? Will we have the courage to stand for Christ? At the appropriate time, will we step out and will we be willing to talk about our faith of Christ or sharing the the, the hope of Christ to those who may reject us, respond negatively, or will we pay it, play it safe? And well, well, I don't want to be offensive. And, and in reality, what we're doing is we're saying, I don't want to risk disapproval or the rejection of people or of the culture that doesn't believe. And Jesus' challenge to us is he calls us to be willing to stand up. And, and he calls it, it's called to acknowledge Christ before men. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, look at verses 26 and 27. It says, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will be, not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Now, when he says have no fear of them, the context is he's talking about the people that we're sharing the faith with. There are gonna be people that are gonna respond negatively, and he says, well, go out there and don't be fearful of that. He, we're called to go out public even in the sense of, of knowing that there are going to be people that might respond negatively or even harshly or even persecute us for doing it. And so then he continues in verse 33, or 32 and 33. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so he's calling us to, in a sense, stand up to acknowledge him. Now, what's that mean? Now, one of the things that if you look at the context, he's saying that one of the things we're called to represent Christ and that will mean that we are called to shine as light in the midst of darkness. That's what he says in verse 27. Look again there. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops. And he's saying, okay, well, I'm now with you and it's just a small group of people and you're hearing me saying it, but just because I'm saying it now in a small group of people, it's not supposed to stay in this small group that's hidden. Now, what you hear me whispered, what you hear me say in a group of, of a, you know, this dozen group of disciples, no, I want you to go proclaim. It's the good news of the gospel. You're entrusted with that. And when it says about what, you, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, he's saying the very nature of our message is light. In fact, throughout the gospels, Jesus uses this, this imagery that we have this message of light, the light, he's the light of the world, the light that the world desperately needs because it's a dark world. 
Jesus kind of explains this idea even, I think, more clearly in Matthew chapter five. Look what he says in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that is in the house. You know, when you light a candle, when you, when you light, turn on a light, the purpose of the light isn't to cover it. Then you have a light. Its very purpose is to be seen. You know, if somebody gives you a, a lantern and it's in the middle of the darkness, you don't put it under your, you know, under your shirt. You don't cover it up. No, the purpose is to be seen. And so he continues. In the same way, light, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, that's what Jesus is calling us to. But also in this passage, there's gonna be a question because then he comes and he says, okay, you know, um, you know, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And there's a question before we have to say, what does it mean to acknowledge him? And that's a question that seems kind of harsh. Uh, if we deny him, he's gonna deny it before our Father. I know I've talked to, to my wife Sandy and she said, this passage used to really scare her. And it's like, well, have I denied her? Am I gonna, is God gonna reject me because I, because I haven't stood for him in the right way? And, and in that, we have to ask, is this saying that there's some work that we have to do to be saved? That I need to believe in Jesus and acknowledge him, whatever that means to make this public profession of faith? And now some people will say yes, but I disagree with them for a simple reason. You know, anytime you have, the, many of you know, you hear me say all the time, if there's anything uncertain in the Bible, the first rule for interpreting the Bible is use scripture to interpret scripture. So if we go to other passages in scripture, it's very, very clear, how are we saved? By faith alone in Jesus. So for example, in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. We're saved by faith. It's not a public profession, it's something we do in addition to faith. It's not a work that we do. But what the Bible teaches is it's something that reveals our faith. See, he's challenging us as followers of Jesus Christ to say, okay, are you willing to identify with me even if it means possibly being rejected? Am I that important to you? You see, if God is really the most important thing in our lives, then I'm willing to identify with him. And if I'm hiding that, then I've got to say, okay, how important is he really to me? So what does it mean to publicly identify with Jesus? What is he talking about here? And I I think the Bible teaches two ideas. The first is something that we do one time, usually early in our walk with Christ. The second is something that we do periodic or repeatedly every day. The first one is when we decide to follow Christ, the Bible calls us to make some kind of public statement where we publicly identify ourselves as a follower of Christ. And the Bible calls us to do that through baptism. And so when you see throughout the Bible, numerous times it talks about they believe and we're baptized, we believe and we're baptized. And what is baptism? It's, it's, you know, we believe it's by immersion that you come in and there's this washing and it's this public statement of saying, I want to be identified as a follower of Christ. In fact, even as a couple weeks ago, we were looking at the Great Commission and this great challenge of saying, this is the call to the church. And you remember what it says in, in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You're not saved by baptism. But the idea is the whole process of evangelism, of, of sharing our faith, of then come, someone coming to know Christ is, is then uh, signified and sealed in a sense by that public statement of saying, 
Okay, now I publicly declare through my baptism. I'm publicly identifying as a follower of Christ. So what is baptism? It's this idea of saying, okay, I recognize, I'm publicly saying, I needed Jesus to wash me. It's a symbol of washing. And, and not only that, but it's even an immersion, there's imagery in it. So it talks about this in Colossians chapter two, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith, that powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what's the imagery? We are washed, and then as we are put down in baptism, go under the water, there's a sense of saying, I'm identifying with Jesus in his death. I'm realizing there's part of me that needed to die, and I'm identifying with him in his death, and realize that his death saves me. And, and not only that, but then it brings me new life, so there's a new me. So when I come up in his resurrection, that there's a fruit of a new me that comes through him. It's the idea that's talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter five. Therefore, if any was in his Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's a, there's the, the old has passed away. The old, I'm dead with Christ and I'm raised alive as a new creation. Are we saved through baptism? No. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? No. But on the other hand, if you're really saved, if Jesus is really at the center of your life, then baptism should be something you want to do. Let's think of it this way. I've been blessed to be married with my beautiful wife for 31 years. Now, could I have, 31 years ago, say, let's get married. Okay, what I wanna do is let's go to Justice of Peace and get married. I don't wanna tell anybody about it. Let's make it private. You know, let's see, I, I don't wanna let anybody know. I could have done that and exchanged vows and we'd be married, but you're, you're sitting there saying, why would you do that? I mean, if you want to get married and you don't want anybody to know, there's something wrong with that. I wanted to have a public ceremony, why? Because I wanted to publicly declare my love for her. I wanted everybody to know that we are now married, that we're husband and wife. That's something that I was excited about and I wanted to make it public. That's what baptism is. You see, baptism is, are you saved by baptism? No, it's by that commitment to Christ. It's the vows in a sense, it is how we're married. But the baptism is saying, I want to make it public. I want people to know. I want to identify with Christ. And see, if I love Christ as much as I want to identify as being married to my wife, I'm not ashamed. I'm proud of that. And in the same way, I'm proud of being identified as a follower of Christ. Now, I'll let you know, if there may be some here, if you follow Christ and you've never been baptized, I'd encourage you to consider that. It's just a simple way of following Christ. It's important, something that God calls us to. Not that we're saved by it, but it's something he calls us to do. But that's not the whole of what it means to make this public profession. We're also to identify with Christ, not only this one-time daily, but, but an ongoing daily profession through our words and through our actions, what we do every day. You see, there is value in that one-time profession. It's important, but if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if he's the center of your life, that's something that's gonna come out just daily in conversation in life. Think about something for a minute. Think about someone you know well. You have somebody in your mind. Okay, what's most important to that person? Right off the bat, you could probably start to think, well, this, this, this hobby, this, that. Why? Because they talk about it. You go on their Facebook, Instagram, they post pictures of that. And it could be different things. You know, it might be, well, here's my hobby, and well, I love sports, I love, you know, I love following the, you know, the Ohio State or the Indians or, or sorry, Guardians. Um, you, know, I, you know, I love playing this, I'm into golf, or here's my job, here's a new challenge, here's a business that I have, or for, for many, it's our family. For some, it's, well, here's a new boyfriend I have, new girlfriend, and, and 
we're going to be shortly. Here's our grandson. Do you want to see pictures? You know, it's like, man, we're excited about that. We want to share. And we know that. That's normal. That's natural. We're posting pictures on social media. That's normal because the basic truth that we understand is we always freely talk about the things that are most important to us. We all do it naturally. Now, here's the question. If Jesus is that important to us, shouldn't it be natural that we freely talk about him? And if we don't talk about Jesus, then how, how would it, does it show that he's really not that important, that he's not that central? I'm not suggesting that you go out and be offensive or aggressive and pushing your faith with others, no. But it's just being open to talk about things in a way that comes up in everyday conversation. See, again, if people know you well and they don't know that you're a follower of Christ, something's not right with that. And again, let's go back to the illustration of marriage. I want to make public. Now, what if I said, okay, well, I'm married, but now I'm not going to wear my wedding ring. Why? Because I don't want anybody to know I'm married. I don't want anybody to identify. I'm going to take it off. I'm going to, I'm going to, and, and if, I've, I've literally known a few people that if I've known for a couple of years and then you find out they're married, you're like, I didn't know they're married. There's something seriously wrong with that. No, I want to wear my wedding ring. I want to identify. And if I don't want to identify, I'm not hiding that. I'm never talking about my wife. Again, that reveals there's something wrong in this relationship. And if she's really that important to me, if my kids are that important, I'm going to talk about those things. And so in the same way, what we talk about acknowledging Christ before men, it's not just what we do on Sunday morning. It's what we do and what we say throughout the week. It's, it's the courage to, to speak our convictions when everyone else will mock those convictions. It's the ability to insist on integrity and honesty when, when people in your business are cutting corners and cheating to get ahead. It's the ability to disagree with the gossip or slander that your friends are participating in or to walk away from the sexual talk in the locker room or at the lunchroom table, even though you know that doing so might cause you to be the one that is now teased. It's looking for the opportunity. When God opens the door to bring up issues of faith and to talk about your faith, to offer to pray for a friend, to pray that God would open that door. Now, I know that that's hard. I know that some of you are thinking, but I don't know how to do that. It's intimidating. In fact, Jesus knew it's hard, and that's what we're seeing here in Matthew 10. He's addressing the fact that, okay, I know this is hard. This is why I'm giving you this encouragement. In fact, he even talks about a couple of fears that, that he sees, that he anticipates. These are things that I know that, that, that can limit you, that can hinder you. And he, and he says, okay, here's, I want you to understand these fears and the antidote. Now, the first is what some of you might already be thinking. You know, I would be willing to talk to friends about the faith, but I don't know what to say. I've never taken a class in evangelism. I'm afraid that they're going to ask me questions. I don't know how to respond. And so the first fear is our own limitations. The fact that we think that, you know, we don't have what it takes. Now, this morning, we're looking at verses 26 through 33. But I want to take a moment just to go back a few verses, back to verses 19 and 20. And here what you're going to see is that Jesus addresses this head on. He says, okay, I realize that you're going to be out there and you're going to hesitate to stand up because you're not sure you're going to know what to say. But look what he says, starting in verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Basically what Jesus is saying is, you know, if you're willing to confess me before others and speak openly about your faith, 
there are gonna be times that you're kinda like, I don't have to say, but realize that the Holy Spirit promises that he's gonna be with you. He's gonna work in you in that moment and give you wisdom, illuminate your mind, give you wisdom to say things that you didn't know where they came from. Now, he was talking here about, well, you're gonna be put before trials and things like, we don't generally have to worry about that. But yet we still worry about being put before our friends or be put before coworkers or and, and before the culture. And one of the concerns that we have is, you know, if, some, if we speak out in our faith, somebody's gonna challenge us and we don't know what to say. So often we think the best approach is I'm just gonna stay silent. You know, I'm gonna support Jesus from a distance. But I want you to think about it. That's what Peter did at Jesus' trial. He's coming and he's saying, oh, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm at a distance, but I just don't wanna actually be asked. I don't wanna actually have to take a side with people that might be opposed to you. My friends, no, God has called us to have the courage to boldly confess him. And he says that we may not know what to say, but at that moment, God will let us know. And not only that, then the second fear is, well, what about people if they reject us and we might face rejection and persecution? That's what he's addressing in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And here's the perspective of sovereignism. Yes, there will be opposition. Yes, there will be people that will try to harm you. Yes, there will be, the Bible's re realistic about that. And there's some degree that they may have power over us, but it's far less than what they believe or what we would fear. And sovereignism is totally realistic about evil and about the pain that comes with that, but then reminds us that God is greater than evil, that God is greater than any opposition. Are there people that can do harm to us? Yes, but the harm is limited. And not only that, it's limited to only that which God allows and God, what God will use ultimately to bring some good. And for us, it may not be, you know, usually it's not killing our body, but it's you know, what are they gonna do to our reputation, our career advancement, or make, make, make fun of our religious commitment, hurt our feelings, or other, our reputation with other people. And so we've gotta say, okay, what do we do? Because even that intimidates us. And I love what Jesus says here. He gives us an answer, and it's an unexpected answer. Because what's the problem? Fear, well, we have fear, that we have this fear that drives us back. And he says, okay, if you wanna know what gives you confidence, it's go to the right fear. The, the answer to fear is fear. It's a fear in which we find confidence and courage. Look at it again in verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, when we look at this, it says, okay, don't kill the people that can kill the body, but rather fear God. And the big question is, what does he mean here? He's not teaching, okay, well, don't fear the people that will get you if you follow God. Fear the God who's gonna get you if you don't. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's speaking of fear in the sense that there's a reverence and respect and there's a sense of being overwhelmed by God, by his power, by his glory, by his grace, by his holiness. Put another way, it's making God our defining reality. Seeing him as the ultimate reality. When Jesus tells us not to fear men, but to fear God, what he's saying is, again, not that we're afraid of God, but what he's saying is that we're more aware of God's power of God's greatness than we are of the power of those who threaten us. And this is vital. In fact, the Bible speaks about this idea of the fear of the Lord all the time. I love Proverbs chapter nine, uh, 10, verse nine, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of understanding life. 
what is fear? It's seeing myself in the proper relationship with God. And the closer I get to him, the more I realize how great he is and how small I am. Not that I'm fearful, I'm drawn towards him, but it's not only realize that I'm small, I realize that anything that stands against him is small. And so I have great confidence because if he is with me, then who's gonna be against me? See, the Bible teaches that a proper fear of God will free us from an improper fear of men. And it's natural that we would have this fear of men until we have this fear of God. I love, you know, Dave Bradford read a few moments ago in Hebrews chapter 11. What is faith? Faith is uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Put another way, faith is when the things that God says are more real to us than the things that we see and feel. So when God's power, when, 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 when he's more real, when his strength is more real to us than the threats of the enemy. And in verse six, he continues, without faith, Dave read this a moment ago, without faith is impossible to please him for uh, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now here's what it's saying. Faith is when we're driven by the perspective that not only God exists, but ultimate reward comes from pleasing him. And when we understand that, you say, okay, I'm going to seek after God because if God is for me and if he's gonna reward me when I'm doing what's right, there may be people that attack me, but if I've got God behind me, man, I'm, I'm not living for them. I'm living for the audience of one. Reminds me of Psalms. That couple years ago, we did a study on the Psalms and, and the theme, I think the defining theme of the Psalms where it tells us to praise and worship at all times, even when it's hard, why? because I think the principle that we saw from the Psalms is this, you will either be overwhelmed by your circumstances or you'll be overwhelmed by God. You cannot be overwhelmed by both at the same time. And what is it saying here? You will either be overwhelmed by the enemy, by the opposition, by the threats out there, or you'll be overwhelmed by God. You will not be overwhelmed by both at the same time. That's what he's saying, be overwhelmed by God, and it's gonna give us courage. In fact, let me give you a picture of this, an image from the Bible. Okay, remember the idea is that I get closer to God, I realize not only small, small I am, but how small any threat is. Great illustration of that. David and Goliath in the Bible. That's what that story is all about. Here you have Goliath, who's nine foot nine. I mean, the guy's, you know, huge. And not only that, the Bible gives all this description about the armor, and, and basically the description was that he wasn't just a beanpole, this guy was like built, he was strong, his shield was 200 pounds, his, you know, and this guy was, was enormous. And then we're told that David, we're not told exactly his size, but that he's a youth, he's not fully yet grown. So, so here's maybe five foot five, 120. So you got one guy, five foot five, 120. The other guy, nine foot nine, 700 pounds, all decked out in armor. David just barely comes to his belly button and they're gonna say, okay, we want you to go fight. David's, he's got armor, David's got a stone. That doesn't look that good. But David saw not his own size or the size of Goliath as related to him, but he saw the size and power of old mighty God. And so Goliath, when he comes out, Goliath looks at him and starts laughing and mocking him. You know, you're, you're sending me your, your animals, your pets, you know, you don't belong in this field, you're puny. And David looks at him and he says, but I see not myself related to you, I see God. You're threatening God, you're questioning God. And I'm looking at God and compared to God, you're puny, you don't belong on this field. And he had confidence and ultimately victory because he saw God differently. It's not that he saw Goliath's strength and where he was confident in his slingshot ability. No, he saw it 
he saw God differently. He saw God not only in relation to himself, but in relation to Goliath. But that's what he's calling us to, this kind of confidence. But yet Jesus here even still anticipates one more objection. He says, because some of us would say, okay, that's what Jesus or what God does for David. He was a king. That's what he does for the big people, the people, you know, the big issues in life. And, but does he care about me? Well, look what he says in verse 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He calls us to find confidence, not only God's power and strength, but also his fatherly love. See, in that time, sparrows were like, you know, tiny little birds that were so numerous that people, kids would catch them. And if you were really poor, they would, you know, they would use them as meat. They were the cheapest meat at that time. So you could buy two for this, you know, for basically a penny. And so they were incredibly numerous. And Jesus is saying, God, not one of them is, is lost in his sight. And then later he says, you are more valuable than them. So why is that one fall to the ground without him awareness? Because they're valuable to him. And so if, if every one of them is, is aware of God, then how much more are we important? And then he tells us. He says, he knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, when I think of that, there's what information could be more complex and harder to know and at the same time seemingly more irrelevant. I'm gonna tell you, I love my wife. In 31 years, I've gotten to know her really, really well. I know just about everything about her. I have no, many, no idea how many hairs she has on her head. I've never tried to count. Um, now, she's tried to count mine. You know, she says, oh, here's one. We need to cut it off. You know, that's kind of like, that's pretty easy. It's, you know, but, but generally, the fact of the matter is, is that that's something none of us know. And here's what Jesus is saying. God cares about that. If he cares about the number of hairs on your head, do you think he knows and cares about the things that are actually important, the threats that you face in life, things that you worry about? Now, he understands every fear, or every weakness, or every need, and he calls us to find hope, not just in knowing his strength, but knowing his love. Let me use an illustration that I think, again, makes sense to any of us that have, have had kids. All right, the Bible talks about that we're God's children. In fact, it, sometimes it says that we, we can refer to him as Abba, Father. That literally was the word for daddy. That we're to come to God as almost preschoolers that come up and say, daddy. And I think back when my kids were that age. And any of you have had young kids, you know that when your kids are preschoolers, they generally have something that is little, that is of no value, that is of supreme value to them. You know, and that's that one thing that if you forget it, you're in trouble because, man, that's so important. And, and I, I remember even one with one of our boys, you know, it was for him, it was this little rubber ducky and it was like this little tiny, you know, probably cost one cent to make and it was like this big. And man, he loved, I don't know why, but he loved that ducky. Every, it went everywhere with us. And I remember one day we'd gone to a movie and we're walking out of the movie theater and he suddenly realized that he had forgotten his ducky in the movie theater. But we've already walked out. So what are, what are we gonna do? It's like, man, he's upset. And I'm, I have to confess, I broke the law. I mean, I, I waited for someone to come out of the movie theater. I went in the exit, you know, to go back in, not to watch a movie, but, but to go find a ducky. And fortunately, it was still there and I brought it out for him. And, and you look at that and you say, why did I do that? Because it was important to him. Now, what would you think if, I, if you saw, heard him saying, my ducky, and if you saw me as a parent said, that ducky doesn't matter. Don't you know it's just a one cent piece of rubber? You're stupid for caring about it. You know, you, you're probably thinking you're a bad daddy. Why? Because daddies care about the things that are important to their kids. Now, if that makes me a good daddy, 
what we have to realize is that when we assume that God isn't concerned about the things that are important to us, we're assuming that God cares about us less than we care about our kids or our grandkids. No, he's the perfect daddy. He's a perfect father. He loves and cares about every detail in our lives. He knows the number of hairs on our head. And if we understand that, we can realize, okay, he calls us to go diff- into difficulty, but he's gonna be with us. He's not only standing us with us in his power, but in his love and even the little things, the little impacts that it makes. That's why I love it talks about this idea in Romans chapter eight. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, God will, but God gave him up for us all. How we and not also with him graciously give us all things. If God is for us, what do we have to fear? And just in case you have any doubt how much he loves you, remember he died for you. And if he died for you, everything else he gives you costs him nothing. You're his child. And so what should that do? If we understand all this, it, God calls us to then stand for Christ with courage and confidence. We are his representatives. And yes, it is hard. And yes, it is intimidating. But he calls us to go out and to be willing to acknowledge him before men. Not only that one time, but daily throughout to represent him, to be the light in the world that needs that light. And realize, yes, it will be hard, but he will work with us and through us and honor that faithfulness. The atheist had attacked the Christian faith for the better part of an hour and he captivated the crowd with his arguments, with the logic and his magnetic personality and his, his persuasion. And after, after attacking just everything you know, uh, about the Christian faith, he then ended with this challenge. He says, you know, I've proven that there is no God. If there is anyone who is willing to stand up and, and say that Jesus is the Son of God, come and stand here. Tell me where my arguments are wrong. And again, the crowd sat in silence. The majority of them did believe in God. Many were followers of Jesus Christ, but they were intimidated by, by the speaker's logic and his, his arguments, his eloquence. And they were afraid, what if I'm the only one to stand? And in the silence, the speaker began to even mock Christianity all the more. But then there was a disturbance. At first, it was something that you could barely hear. It sounded like a, maybe a soft voice or two, and, 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 and then, people started to turn their eyes and, and they saw in the middle of that big auditorium, there were two young girls that had stood up. And two young girls, they not only stood up, but they had come out in the middle of the aisle and they were holding hands and they were walking down the aisle singing what was even then an old song. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. And everybody saw these girls walking down and were just stunned silence. They couldn't believe what was happening. And then someone else stood where he was at and joined in the song and someone else and someone else. And, and as they started to sing, they started to sing with vigor and with, with, with uh, passion and, and loudly. And the, the speaker was sitting watching. At first he was amused and then he was angry. He wanted to say something. But over time, more and more people stood. And before time, the majority of the congregation was there. They were standing, singing loudly that song. And the speaker turned, defeated, and just walked off the stage. Defeated by the courage of a few girls that were willing to stand with Christ with confidence and courage. My friends, that's what God has called us to. And recognizing that as we are willing to do that, he will give us what we need. He will stand with us. It's not saying that it will easy, be easy. 
He will give us the strength. When God is for us, who can be against us? And not only that, but he will bless us. Because even in that, con- that story, you know, you have a couple girls, if there are a couple girls standing against the Goliath, but you know what? When a little David is willing to stand and sees, because he sees God as willing to stand against the Goliath, it's Goliath that falls. It's true then, it's true now. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.